If everyone could open their Bibles up to Matthew chapter 27, 38 to 44. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. When I was in seminary, we were up in Massachusetts, just north of Boston, There's a small town that is infamous in Massachusetts. Can anybody name that small town? Salem. Thank you. Salem and the horrible witch trials that went on in that area. You go into that city, they got museums, the whole thing. Um, It's interesting, when we were there, we, we had to learn some different vocabulary and different way of pronouncing words. We had to drop all of our R's and things of that sort up in that area. However, one word that was really unusual, and I would assume came from that whole Salem aura, is the word wicked. Except they would use it in a very positive way. That's wicked good. Wicked wonderful, or it's just wicked Last Sunday, we began looking at the culmination of God's plan of salvation. And as we began examining the wickedness of the crucifixion, and there was nothing good about that wickedness. The word wicked is... Got to watch my flailing arms. The word wicked is an awfully strong term. Uh, Too extreme? Is it too extreme? To... Describe the people who were around that cross that day when Jesus was crucified. Let me remind you of what Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 4, when he called his generation a wicked generation. Or in Luke chapter 11, when he said to the leaders of Israel who were full of wickedness. Or when those leaders approached him in Matthew chapter 22, we are told that Jesus perceived their wickedness. And Paul in Romans 1 verse 29 identified unbelieving Christ rejectors by saying they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. All of this is true because of what Jeremiah identified as the heart of man being desperately wicked. Yeah, but you might say, I... People say that man is basically good. Isn't that true? No. Hate to break it to you. It's not. That is a lie from Satan. If we were basically, intrinsically, inherently good, there'd be no need for salvation. Why is that true? Because we have all what? Sinned. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, mankind is by very nature inherently, basically, wicked. 
because of the sinful nature that we are born with. And that's why the crucifixion of our Savior is the greatest expression of human evil and wickedness in history. Because it's the ultimate demonstration of the depth and the comprehensiveness of the sinfulness of human nature. And that's why Jesus had to come and die on the cross. To break that inherent wickedness in man to infuse into us the goodness of God. But we see the wickedness of Satan boiling over here in this last, these last moments, this last day of Jesus' life on earth, and it boiled over through the Jewish priests and the elders and the mob in Jerusalem and, uh, during the time of Passover and in Pilate and in the Roman soldiers. And he did this to destroy, in the most horrible way possible, the only one who could destroy and put an end to his own reign and dominion on the earth. Satan pulled out all the stops and is and was and will be wickedness personified in people. Now last week we said that wickedness was not content just to execute Jesus, but it had to torment him in the process by slapping him, punching him, spitting on him, humiliating him, defaming and blaspheming him, and ridiculing him, and, and scorning him, all while he was in the process of dying. No wonder Isaiah said in chapter 53, calling him a man of sorrows, which we sang about earlier. Because he suffered more sorrow than any person. In fact, he suffered more sorrow than all men and women who have ever lived, ever combined. How can I say that? Because according to Isaiah 53, 4, he took up our pain and bore our collective suffering. In addition to his own sorrow and being alienated and separated from his father. The prophet Isaiah says he was acquainted with grief. <laughs> what an understatement that is. You know what else? Listen carefully to what I'm saying here because I don't want you to misunderstand. He also suffered from sin. Sounds shocking. Though he was sinless, on the cross he suffered from sin. In fact, it was so great that Paul, writing in the, to the Corinthians, that he became what? He became sin for us. He suffered all the weight of sin, all of yours, all of mine, all of mankind. And as, as if that were not enough, he endured the greatest suffering of all as he suffered the very wrath of God. Because on the cross, when he became sin, God then had to pour out all of heaven's fury against all of earth's sin, and it all fell on Jesus Christ. So he suffered the unmitigated wrath of God, described, described as a cup of God's wrath. That was a cup that he didn't want to drink when he was in Gethsemane. And so we have here described by Matthew the wickedness of the crucifixion. And we began looking at four different groups of people who appear in this particular scene. There were the ignorant wicked... There are the knowing wicked, there are the fickle wicked, and the religious wicked. And I'd like to suggest to you that every person in the world 
who does not come to faith in Jesus Christ. Every Christ-rejecting person falls into one of these four categories. They were there at the cross. They're still here today. Now last week we looked at the ignorant wicked who was illustrated to us by the callous soldiers. In verses 27 through 38, they were basically ignorant because to them, Jesus is just another criminal. They're just told to, to kill another, another person. Kind of deranged criminal. One, from what they hear, claims to be king. I mean, really pathetic, right? They whipped him with joy emanating from the, their ignorance, their, their wickedness from their heart. They beat him, spit on him, mocked him as king by putting, his, uh, putting a scarlet robe on him, putting a scepter made out of a flimsy reed. They put a crown of thorns on his head, mocking his kingship, mocking his authority. And Little did they know in their ignorance that he was indeed a king, the king of kings. And that he will, in fact, wear a robe, a blood-spattered robe at that In Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, it describes Jesus Christ coming in glory at the second coming of heaven, and it says He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and His name is the Word of God, John 1.1. Yes, He will be wearing a robe of royalty, and it will be a robe dipped in blood, but at that time, it's not going to be His blood. It's going to be the blood of His enemies. One day, He will wear a royal crown. Not a crown made by human hands, certainly not a crown of thorns. It'll be much different. It's called a diadem, a royal, heavenly, regal crown of heaven. In fact, in in Revelation 19, 12, it says that he will wear many crowns. And I would suspect that they may be all the crowns of all the kings that's ever been worn because he alone is the king of kings. And someday he will wield a scepter, but it's not going to be made out of a reed According to Revelation 19.15, it's a rod of iron. A rod of iron with which he will bring instant judgment on the unbelieving world. So from the mockery of these ignorant, wicked soldiers, God is using them to look ahead at the exaltation of Christ. As God exalts him to the highest place, giving him the name that is above every name. And so they crucified him. These ignorant soldiers illustrate many people in all times, in all periods of history, who were really ignorant of who Jesus Christ is. He may be someone, they may have heard his name somewhere, but they're not sure who he is, and they really aren't too interested in finding out. But you know, it's really an unnecessary ignorance, because Christ is the true light that came into the world that gives light to everyone. John 1.9. Is that really true? Well, yes. The promise that doesn't change is way back in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13. You will seek me and find me when? When you seek me with all your heart. It's possible for every person. If they really truly seek, they will find him. Because he says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. But they have no interest in that. They are the ignorant, 
wicked and the world is still full of them. The world is still full of people who reject Jesus Christ out of ignorance because they don't know. It's a willful ignorance, but it's an unnecessary ignorance. But they are nevertheless ignorant. They just don't know. And many don't seek to find out. They don't care. But there's a more wicked group than that group that we want to look at here this morning. And, um, and we find that in verse 38. If the first group are the ignorant wicked, the, other, the next group would have to be the knowing uh, wicked. They're not ignorant. They know. Now, they may not know everything, but they know something. And verse 38 tells us, two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And they're the ones that are going to be de- depicting for us the knowing wicked. Uh, of course, being crucified between these two is another way of trying to make Jesus associated uh, with guilt, to dishonor him, to shame him, hang on the cross between the two thieves, perhaps associates even of Barabbas, who was supposed to be hanged perhaps on that middle cross instead of Jesus until the crowd said, no, we want Barabbas, you go ahead and crucify Jesus. So there he hangs with these two thieves. The Greek word is lestes, to describe thieves. Now there are a couple of words in the Greek language that have to do with stealing. One is lestes and the other is kleptai. Kleptai, as you can probably imagine, is a word we get our, our English word klepto from, a kleptomaniac, somebody who just goes around and picks up just because they can't help it, right? Oh, it's cool. And off they go. But lestes is a different word, and that's a word that Matthew uses here. And basically it means a bandit or plundering robber. This is what he did. They planned this out. This is what they did for living, uh, for a living. And unlike the soldiers, most likely conscripted from Syria, these men, these two thieves on the cross, knew something about the claims of Jesus. We know that because of what verse 44 tells us. In the same way, the rebels, those thieves hanging on the cross, who were crucified with him, also heaped insults on him. Well, what insults? The same insults that the other Jewish people around him and the the, uh, priests and the elders were throwing at him. So they knew some of the claims of Jesus. They were familiar because they were part of the Jewish society. They themselves uh, were, were Jews. Maybe even had stood and heard Jesus teach. Perhaps had seen Jesus do some miracles, or at least had heard about some of those miracles. We don't know for sure, but it's obvious they knew something about him. But they too were wicked, and they heaped insults on Jesus. They reviled him, they rebuked Jesus just like the soldiers did, and they did it with more knowledge than the soldiers had. You see, it isn't only the ignorant pagans who reject Jesus Christ and who have pleasure in his execution, but it's also those thoughtless materialistic thieves. For them, life revolved around possessions, materialism, loot. They had no thought about righteousness or about truth or justice or honor or godliness. They had no concern for morality. They were just out for what they could get. And you know, there are still a lot of people today like them. They know about Jesus. They may not know much, but they know a little. But for them, life revolves around what they can get. They may not be plundering thieves like the two that were hanging on those crosses, but life is all about the material things. It's, it's, uh, it's the goal, more of everything. They give little thought to righteousness 
Little time to search for truth. They live for self and what they can get out of life. They have a greater love for the things of the world than certainly they do for the things of God. And in the end, they will pay a great price. Like those thieves hanging on the cross, so close to Jesus, and yet so far. Are they beyond hope? Well, just like the centurion among the ignorant soldiers that we touched on last week, everyone still has the opportunity to have that aha moment. Oh, that's got to be Christ. Luke 23, starting at verse 39, says this, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. It actually uses the word blasphemed him with the verb tense indicating that he continued to rail at him. It was a continual thing. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us, said that one thief. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, this is amazing, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now I believe that both of those thieves began insulting. Matthew says they were both doing it. But the one thief, at some moment of time there on the cross, had his aha moment. Oh my goodness. This is truly the Son of God. And he realized who Jesus was. This, this story in many ways is one of the most touching stories in the whole Scripture. A dying penitent thief accepts Christ as Lord and Master and is assured of, Jesus, of being in, with Jesus there in paradise. Again, everyone, very important verse in the Bible, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, even that corrupt thief hanging on the cross. But you've got to call on the name of the Lord. But there's another group standing around the cross, and we see them in verses 39 and 40. We can call them the fickle wicked. These represent people who, for a while, hear about Christ, perhaps understand quite a bit about Christ, and even make some kind of a commitment to follow Christ, at least intellectually. But because it never becomes a transformation of the heart, eventually they turn away from him. Verse 39 says, those who passed by. Now, we don't want to, we always need to be careful not to read too much into a phrase. Um, but it was very common, as we mentioned last Sunday, for Romans to crucify their victims on the highways. So everybody passing by can see what the results would be if they went against Rome. And this would be no different on a very well-traveled road right outside the walls of Jerusalem, probably the road heading up straight north out of Jerusalem, outside the city walls. People would be busy going in and out, back and forth. Uh, Simon of Cyrene, he was, he was coming along that road back into the city when Jesus was walking out or parading him out. It was a day of Passover. They'd be taking care of all the things that they had to get ready for that final, final celebration. These were the same people who, many of whom who had heard Jesus' uh, teaching. They had heard his miracles. But then they were the same ones that started yelling, crucify him, Monday to Friday. 
They were the ones coming in as they were coming in from uh, into Jerusalem. What do we call that? Palm Palm Sunday. We we celebrate the uh, coming in to celebrate the Messiah coming in, waving their palms, putting their clothes cloaks on on the road, bringing him in as their Messiah and their Savior. And now they're crying, "Crucify him!" He's just a victim of Roman crucifixion now. He must have not been all that great after all. And he's rejected them as they passed by. They reviled him, it says. Actually, they kept on reviling him. It's an imperfect verb tense there. Continual defamation, continual blasphemy. And the passage that we read from Psalm 22 this morning predicted that this is exactly what they would do. In verse 7 of Psalm 22, it says, All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they said. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. So they fulfilled exactly what the psalmist said they would fulfill. It isn't that they were trying to fulfill Scripture. They didn't care about Scripture. They weren't thinking about Psalm 22. It's that Scripture knew exactly what they were going to do because the author was the Holy Spirit. Verse 39 here in Matthew 27 says, Those who passed by hurled insults at him. Sounds like Psalm 22. Shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. So just how fickle are they? Again, just a few days before that, they were praising him and waving branches, throwing their cloaks on the road in front of him, hailing him as king. And when the trial before Pilate uh, took place, Pilate gave them a choice between Jesus and Barabbas. And you remember that in the brief period that Pilate turned to consider the note that came from his wife, the priests and elders were able to change the mind of that whole crowd that fast. That's how fickle they were. So as a crowd comes by again, that same crowd that heard those accusations, they see Jesus hanging there, they wag their heads back and forth and go on blaspheming, blaspheming him and mocking him. They're like so many people, even today, fickle. Fickle people. There are some people who have been to church, been in church, maybe hopping from one church to another. They've attended church, maybe even raised in the church, you know. They know the message. They they may have even gone through the motions, making a confession of faith or, or even being baptized, maybe served on a committee. But then they were discouraged, disappointed, perhaps took offense at something. So they stepped away and aren't interested anymore. Jesus, or perhaps the church, didn't fulfill their expectations. Now don't lose heart if you know someone like that. Because there's always hope, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But in fact, the people in Jesus' time, when he rode in Jerusalem, thought he was going to attack and overthrow Rome. But he actually came into the town, and he attacked the Jews, and he he wiped out that whole buying and selling process there in the temple courts. So how could this be the Messiah all week long? He's done nothing according to their expectations. And now look at him. He's hanging on a cross put there by the Romans. He's a victim. That can't be our Messiah. What a disappointment. 
The world is full of people like that even today, people whose only interest in Jesus is an immediate satisfaction, an immediate, perhaps, self-indulgence. And if he doesn't deliver what they want, when they want it, it's over. They're done. And we grieve over those who we know that may fit that category. And there's a tremendous amount of responsibility for someone who knows Jesus, knows his claims, knows his power, knows his person, understands the truth to some degree, and walks away from it. And we need to keep praying and never give up. Praying that God would draw them back because Scripture says the Father that draws them. Again, it's not too late for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The fickle wicked. But they're not the worst group. The worst group we see in verses 41 to 43, the religious wicked. Seems like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? The religious wicked. I learned a new vocabulary word this, this week, canting. C-A-N-T-I-N-G, canting. One author, in describing the religious Jewish leaders, described them as canting leaders. I looked it up, canting. An apparently insincere use of religious or pious phraseology. Today we call it Christianese. It's easy to speak Christianese, isn't it? Using Christian phraseology to make us sound good. But these were the religious leaders chosen to lead God's people in righteousness, but having none themselves, it was impossible. The canting religious leaders, the religious wicked, they became the most insincere, hypocritical, the lowest form or level of blasphemers. Religious hypocrites who paraded their piousness, who wanted to appear to represent God and know know the truth. Uh, They wanted to be, be seen as pure and godly and virtuous, seen as representing the Word of God. But the truth of it was that they were filled with hate and maliciousness and wickedness toward the very Messiah of God Himself. In verse 41, we meet them. We meet the august Sanhedrin, the priests and the elders, the ruling religious body of Israel, supposedly the religious elite who knew everything there is to know about the truth of God and the Word of God and the mind of God and the heart of God who pretended to love God and revere His Word and hold up His name. They're there along with everybody else. And it's interesting to note that they didn't say anything to Jesus Christ while Christ was hanging on the cross. The crowd did. The crowd gave their, uh, their accusations directly to Him. You who are going to destroy the temple and build in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. They were speaking to Jesus Himself. But not these cowardly, religious, wicked who put him there. They hated and despised him so much that they wouldn't have even address him directly. They were still more interested in being seen as right in the eyes of the crowd. The crowd was mocking and these religious leaders joined in as if to say, See, we were right. Verse 42 and 43, He saved others, they said, speaking to the crowds. But he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and, and we'll believe in him, right? He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. Not now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. They were looking for the crowd's approval. 
But that's not what they should have been concerned about. They were all about religion, but nothing about God. Jesus had called them blind guides. You fools. He said, woe to you who are like whited sepulchers, full of dead men's bones. You serpents, you generation of vipers, woe to you hypocrites. You are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. Matthew 23, Jesus pronounced seven woes or curses on them as hypocrites. In fact, in verse 15, he says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much, listen, a child of hell as you are. He called them children of hell. That's what they should have been concerned about. Their own judgment at the hand of God. In fact, having been given the responsibility of leading God's people, they will be judged more strictly according to James chapter 3, verse 1. So there's the scene. And just like back then, every person today who is an unbeliever can be found among those four groups. They're either an ignorant unbeliever, a knowledgeable unbeliever, a fickle unbeliever, or a religious unbeliever. Folks, there are pastors today that are religious unbelievers. And they're going to have much to answer for. Now listen carefully. For all the horribleness of the people surrounding Jesus on the cross that day, for all the wickedness on display, the most striking thing is Jesus' prayer to his Father. As the soldiers were callously dividing up his clothes, he said, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. What we see on the cross is Christ, the friend of sinners, an accusation that he was accused of during his ministry. The people for whom he came to die And who was actually on the cross, not because he could not come down, because he would not come down. Friend of sinners, horrible, horrible person, Jesus was accused of. But if he were not a friend of sinners, folks, we'd be lost. We would be lost. A centurion would never have heard the words, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. The thief on the cross would never have heard the words, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. That is a friend of sinners, is it not? Why? Why did Jesus still offer forgiveness to those horribly wicked people? They had done horrible things to Him. They deserved judgment. They deserved to die in their sins. They deserved hell. Yes, yes, and yes. But you know, the Holy Spirit tells us through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 3, like the rest, like all those people around him at the cross, like the rest, you were by nature, there's a wickedness, the by nature deserving of wrath. That's it. We were deserving of God's wrath. We were deserving of judgment. We were deserving of hell. But, 
Wonderful, but in the Bible, but because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated uh, us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages to, uh, He might show the in- incomparable riches of His grace expressed how? In His kindness to us in Christ Jesus, a friend of sinners. Remember way back in the beginning of Jesus' ministry when He was talking to Nicodemus? He said to him in John chapter 3, verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. That was never His purpose. Never His purpose. But, Jesus said to Nicodemus, to save the world through Him. Always His purpose. Yeah, but what about the worst of those wicked people who yelled, crucify Him? Even them? To answer that, let, let me show you something in Acts chapter 2 as we bring this to a close this morning. Acts chapter 2. Peter stands, he stands up and he's preaching to a huge crowd gathered there on the day of Pentecost. And he says in verse 14, then, it says 14, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, listen carefully to what I say. And he launches into a great sermon about Jesus Christ, during which he indicts them for the wicked crucifixion of Christ. And in verse 23, he talks about the resurrection of the Lord. And he comes to a powerful conclusion in verse 36 when he says that God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Do you remember what happened at that point? When the people heard this, who were those people? The people of the city, the people in Jerusalem, the Jewish people that were there, the same people who cried out, Hosanna, on Monday. The same people who cried, crucify him, on Friday. The same people who walked by the cross, wagging their heads and taunting Jesus. And we are told that they, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Was there an aha moment? And Peter replied, Repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41 tells us, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. That was a fickle wicked. That was the fickle wicked. Those who had praised Him then turned around and screamed, Crucify Him. God, by His sovereign grace, rescued 3,000 souls. And it says in verse 47, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You know what's even more amazing? In Acts chapter 6, we find the church beginning to flourish and grow and more and more people of that, of that city were being brought to the Savior and grace continued to be offered to those who accepted Jesus Christ. And the icing on the cake, if you will, comes in verse 7 of Acts chapter 6. Listen, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and listen to this, and a large number of priests. 
became obedient to the faith. Those religious, wicked, horrible priests that instigated everything. And I'm quite sure that amongst those religious leaders who had mocked and blasphemed the name of Jesus Christ, who had riled up the crowd to to yell crucify him, who had ignored the innocence of the Lamb of God without blemish, God by his sovereign grace received some of them to be his own in the early church. They had their aha moment. He is indeed the friend of sinners, always, always wanting to rescue them. He's eager to forgive, and he is ready to forgive. I don't know where you are today. I know where many of you are in your spiritual life with with Christ. But Jesus longs to embrace you into his arms, to give you the salvation he so freely offers. Again, he stayed on the cross not because he could not come down, but he stayed on the cross because he would not come down for you and for me. It's not too late for anyone. I know there are people out there who say, you know, God doesn't want someone like me. I've just done too many horrible things. He wouldn't accept me. Folks, that's Satan's lie. That is absolutely Satan's lie. Satan does not want you to come to Jesus. But Jesus there with his arms open says, come to me. Jesus wants to forgive us and rescue us from God's wrath. That's the compassion of God and the gift of salvation coming from a friend, Jesus Christ himself. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song that we sang last week that expresses what Jesus did that day on, on the cross. And the words are, You take our sins away, O God. You gave your life away for us. You came down. You saved us through the cross. Our hearts are changed because of your great love. And yours can be too. Father, this morning we want to thank you. Thank you for that great love expressed in the horribleness of the cross and the crucifixion. Father, thank you. And Father, if there is one that's listening right now during the service, whether it's within the sanctuary, whether it's online, somebody... uh, clicks on and views this service during the week, Father, I pray that you would prick their hearts. And if they have been a part of the church, if they have tasted it and and walked away from it, been disappointed, discouraged, Father, I pray in your great love and your grace and your mercy that you would draw draw them back to you. And Father, we know that as they come and call in the name of the Lord, You will save them. It's a promise. Thank you, Father. And I pray that we who are walking with you will have that desire to love those around us like Jesus loved those horribly wicked people around that cross. We have neighbors that they certainly don't seem nearly as wicked as that. Father, if they don't believe in you, they they need to be drawn by you. And I pray that our love will show them who Christ is. In Jesus' name. Amen.